When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking to Maura Thomas about her new book, Attention Management, How to Create Success and Gain Productivity Every Day. Welcome back to the show, Maura. Thanks for having me, Christina. I'm so happy to be here. I am so glad that you're back and that we get to talk about the really important topic of attention management. I think it will be of great interest to listeners trying to figure out why we all feel frazzled and that we're working too hard and not getting anywhere seems to have become a really universal problem. But before we jump into that, will you please tell us a bit about yourself? Absolutely. I am a speaker, trainer, and author. I started my business almost 20 years ago now, and I work with mostly organizations, companies to help their team members live a life of choice rather than a life of reaction and distraction and get more of their most important results achieved. And another question I like to ask guests is, because this is the academic life, if you'll take us back to a little bit of your academic life and tell us about your path that got us to where you are now. Sure. I got my undergraduate degree in economics from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and I went back to UMass to the Eisenberg School for my MBA. And Almost my very first job out of college, out of undergrad, I went back for my MBA later, but out of undergrad, I started working for a company that sold paper-based planners and training to go along with those planners. And it was such a great opportunity to learn about how people sort of manage themselves. And I worked there for almost 10 years. And during that time, that's when I got my MBA because this was in Western Massachusetts at the time. And I, my last role there, which I held for about three years, was as director of marketing, where it was my responsibility to explain what we did and tell people, um, tell, tell our staff about how to sort of position the company against others um, who were in the same space. And so as a result of that, I had to learn everything about the productivity industry. And so at the time, I read all the books and I saw all the speakers and I, um, I did all the research. I went to all the trainings and I had the opportunity, the company that I worked for was global. It's called Time System. They're still around. And they had offices in 43 countries at the time. And so twice a year, I got to go sit around a table with 42 other colleagues and talk about productivity in 
globally and in individual countries. And so I got such a really unique education on organization and productivity and how to set ourselves up for success. So that leads to my next question, which is, um, what inspired you to write this book? Yes, that was an interesting journey because the book came out um, in 2019, which was after almost a decade. So I started my business in 2002. And around 2009, I realized that as I was talking to people about productivity, they always translated that into time management. And around 2009, I really started to... um, Well, I started to think about it, but in 2009, I also started to write about the fact that time management wasn't really our problem and that I I thought that it was actually holding us back because we can't really manage time. Everybody knows that when we see time management, we say, well, we know we can't really manage time, but we have these techniques that we put under the heading of time management, techniques like making appointments with ourselves in our calendar and making lists and prioritizing our lists. But I think fundamentally, we we have days where we, at the end of the day, we feel like, man, that was such a great day. Although many of us have to reach way back into our memories to find, uh, to recall that feeling. More recently, most of us have those days where, oh my gosh, I was so busy all day and I got nothing done. But in both of those instances, we had the same 24 hours. And so... Our biggest problem in the 21st century is not that we don't have enough time to achieve our goals. Our biggest problem is that we have too many distractions and you can't solve a distraction problem with a time solution. The antidote to distraction is attention. And so I started to feel really passionate about this and I started to write about it. I published my first article in 2009 and my goal was really to push it into the sort of collective business consciousness. And I feel like it is finally, um, you know, for the last few years, it's finally been gaining some traction. People are talking about it. There's articles about it. And um, that makes me really excited because I really think that attention management is, is the secret to success for now and into the future. I really was excited by this book because it does take us away from the way that we're habituated to talking to saying things like, I don't have time for that, or I will make time or saying to someone else, Oh, well, you just have so much more time than I do. And those conversations always left me confused. Cause I would think, no, I have the exact same number of minutes in a day that, that you do. And I'm prioritizing this. What I'm hearing you say is that you're not prioritizing this, but you're not conscious of the idea that you're not prioritizing this. And this book just sort of says, let's get out of those um, paradigms and let's think about what we're giving our attention to. And when we consider where we're giving our attention, then we can really start to see what we're doing with our day and whether that's getting us towards meaningful goals or not. Is that, am I understanding the book correctly? You are. I, And I think that part of the problem with the prioritization issue is that priorities change, um, you know, day to day. Sometimes 
hour to hour, minute by minute priorities change. And, um, and we have many things in our lives that are important and, we try to give our attention to all of them, but that's really the disservice because in trying to give our attention to all of them, we actually are offering fragmented attention. And so we're not really present for any of them. And so people tell me all the time, if it weren't for multitasking, I would, I wouldn't get anything done. But the truth is, if you stop multitasking, you'd get more done better. But it doesn't feel that way. And that's part of the real issue of distraction and and attention management is that it feels the opposite of what is true. I appreciated that you took on multitasking in the book because people who don't multitask are often seen as I don't want to say lazier than other people, but certainly not as driven as other people. And I have never been a multitasker. It just, it's not possible. I can do the thing that I'm doing. And if you need me to do something else, I can switch to that something else, or I can put you next in the queue, but I can't do two things at once and feel like I'm doing either one of them very well at all. And your book kind of takes us into that and says, that is what the findings say. People who multitask may have a sense that they're getting a lot done, but when we look at the results of all of those things, they're not done as well as they should be, or they're not actually done at all. Exactly. And I think it is important to differentiate when we read studies and read the research about quote unquote multitasking, they're really talking about cognitive multitasking, what's sometimes called media multitasking, which is really about the part of our brain that does complex brain functions like speaking and listening and writing and visual analysis like driving, math, you know, those kinds of cognitive tasks, our brain, that part of our brain can only do one thing. And there are other parts of our brain like that, that take over for routine tasks, we go on autopilot. So it's why we can both drive and talk on the phone, but also why it's quite dangerous because really we need that same cognitive part of our brain to be attentive to the road. But what's happening is we typically will get engrossed in the conversation. And so cognitively we're in the conversation and the autopilot part of our brain is driving. And of course that autopilot part of our brain in charge of this you know, two-ton vehicle is what makes it really unsafe. So it is true that cognitive multitasking is really task switching. If you have a report open and an email comes in, you are not simultaneously reading the email and still working on the report. Exactly what you said. You stop the report, you read the email, you stop reading the email, you go back to the report. So cognitive multitasking is really task switching or cognitive switching and our ability to cognitive switch peaks around age 20. And so it's why younger people think that they're really good at it because until the age of 20, they actually are getting better at it. But the truth is, you know, if, if, if a 50 year old is, is a, is a B or a C at multitasking, then 
a, let's say a 50 year old is a C at cognitive multitasking, then a 20 year old is really only a C plus, which is still really bad. And actually I think even a C is a generous grade (laughs) when it comes to that. So it's just a limitation of the human brain, but physical multitasking and especially physical activity in combination with cognitive activity is actually a great way to multitask. It's why a lot of us pace while we're on the phone because pacing physical movement stimulates brain activity. So if you think about that as multitasking, that's actually a great way to multitask, Christina. So for people who want to do two things at once, they have that sort of antsiness to do more than one thing at once, pacing around or going for a walk while you're ruminating about a problem would be a healthy way to multitask and let your brain function the way it's designed to. Exactly. Or any kind of movement, you could, you know, play with a slinky at your desk while you're thinking. Or, um, you know, some people really enjoy fidget spinners. I think that they can get a little boring after a while. But yes, any type of physical movement is going to support cognitive activity. Mm -hmm. And you also encourage us uh, to take breaks from our cognitive activity. I know one thing I do is I dance around to the radio. That's embarrassing to admit for listeners. No one would want to see. I'm not a trained dancer. No one would want to watch. I do this in private, but I get up and I take like a three to five minute dance break, um, just to sort of reinvigorate and then go back to the work that I'm doing, particularly if I'm doing a deep level of work after an hour and a half or two hours, I start to have a decline in results if I don't take a break and literally hop around badly to, to fun music. (laughs) Yeah, you're exactly right because I think the research shows that – and it depends on so many things and that's why it's kind of all over the place. But research shows that we can sustain our attention in a meaningful way anywhere from – 20 minutes to 75 minutes on average, of course, if it's a really engrossing movie or book or if we're sort of in flow in some activity, of course, we can go on for longer. But 20 to 75 minutes um, of work at any given time is, um, is about it. And we need to pay attention like you do when we start you know, reading the same paragraph over and over and still realizing that we don't know what it said. That is a really important signal to pay attention to and then to do some other different type of activity. And a mistake that we make during our work day is a lot of times or studying, you know, during our school day, whatever it is, we will take a break. But in that break, we will do a different type of cognitive activity like read Facebook or read LinkedIn or scroll Instagram or TikTok. And it's still screen time. It's still cognitive activity. And so it it isn't a break for our brain. So what you're doing is exactly the right thing. Some sort of physical movement, get up, move around, get your heart pumping, right? When your heart pumps faster, it oxygenates your blood. And then that oxygenated blood travels up to your brain and then makes your brain function better. So that physical activity, that's why you see a lot of organizations will have foosball tables or basketball courts or, you know, pool tables so that people actually do get up, move around a little bit, get their heart pumping, because then when you sit back down to work, you'll actually be better at it. 
And I'm thinking of those examples. Those are kind of creative play ways of taking a break. And you talk in the book about how we need to prioritize mental rest. Physical rest is important, but we also need to prioritize mental rest from deep cognitive thinking. And if you're playing foosball, you're using a more creative part of your mind. And you talk about how when we take our mind fully off a complicated cognitive task and we do something that's playful or different or fun, when we go back to the cognitive thing, our brain has been able to make new uh connections and and really push us through what might have been frustrating an hour before. Exactly. Our creativity comes from those new neural connections. And so when we do other things like read a book and eat different food and have interesting conversations and see a movie and take a walk and take in sights, it, um, it sort of knocks us out of those those work types of neural pathways and creates new neural pathways that stimulate our creativity. You talk in the book um, that people are in different places with, with being able to sustain their attention, particularly in this world where our phones bing all the time. And many people have open workspaces. I know as a grad student, I shared um, my student office with up to five or six people at a time. Um, And if you use the library on campus as your de facto office, it's just a giant open workspace. Um, And so you talk about how many of us have lost the ability to have sustained attention for more than just a very short block of time and how we can use a timer and some other techniques to start stretching out how long we can concentrate for. Can you talk about how we can build new attention skills? Yes. And it's really important to think about because that that is one of those things that seems counterintuitive and so it kind of lies to us. What most people don't recognize is that m- many um, people who use technology on a regular basis have become habituated to distraction. They have a habit of distraction and that is very much on purpose. Their habit of distraction was created on purpose by their technology, things like like buttons and you know, push notifications and all of these things that technology um, is designed to do, those things are based on brain science and how to hook people into um, into the distraction of their technology. And so once we have a habit of distraction, the more distracted we are, the more distracted we will be. That habit gets really strong because the habit gets reinforced every few minutes. Most of us get some sort of interruption or distraction every few minutes. And so it becomes a really strong habit. And then that habit chips away at our attention span. And not only that, so it chips away at our attention span, which makes it harder for us to sustain our focus for any period of time. But not only that, is it chips away at our patience because we come to expect a distraction. So even when there isn't one, we go looking for one because we're so conditioned. Wait, there should be something. Maybe I should check my phone right now or check my email. And so we get less 
and less patient. And so we're losing the ability to stay focused for any period of time. And we're losing the desire to stay focused for any period of time. Oh, that seems hard. I don't have time for that. That I don't, I don't want to do that right now. So we gravitate toward the fast and easy things on our list. And we leave the big, hard sounding stuff until later. But the problem is that when we tackle that big, hard sounding stuff, that's when we feel satisfied and accomplished and like we had a really great day, a really productive day that makes us feel good and really enjoy our lives. And so it's it's a real challenge that all these things about distraction are and multitasking are just really the opposite of what is really true. There's so much that you've shared already that's really resonating with me. One of the things that I'd like to circle back to is that you mentioned earlier was that around age 20, the way our brain wants to operate shifts. And so that ability to multitask that you had in high school is pretty much done (laughs) and you need new skills. And, and we're talking about new attention skills and new approach to your project skills. There is a frustration. I can remember that somewhere around in college thinking, what happened to my brain? I used to be smarter four years ago. How did I get, (laughs) what happened to me? And what I'm hearing you say is no, your brain shifted in how it wants to handle tasks. And it's now got a desire to go deeper rather than do a lot of short sporadic things. And yet the world that we live in is trying to push us into those short sporadic things. And yet all the people who report finding meaning and purpose in their work, in their life, gave time to things that took longer or that took them deeper. Yes. We, I think it's manifesting in society that we, um, you know, we read the headline, but not the story. We get the gist, but not... Um, you know, not a a comprehensive understanding. So we know the briefest amount about a breathtaking number of things and very little, um, very little do we know deeply about, you know, about anything. We, one of the ways that you can overcome this tendency to be, constantly distracted and to really go deeper, like you said, and you did ask me about, about techniques, but for sure a timer is one of them where you can set a timer and decide, no, I'm going to do this thing and only this thing. And then you have to sort of put yourself in a little do not disturb bubble with your technology and with other people. And whether that's 10 minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes and just do the one thing so that you really can go deeper. And I think that 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 tendency that we have to read the headline but not the story combined with 24-hour news cycle that is just looking to sensationalize everything is causing real harm, uh, not only to us individually, but to us as a society. And you give us advice for how to step away from that. We can't change how um, marketing is going to keep trying to suck us in and how the um, news is going to keep trying to alarm us enough to make us pay attention to what it has to say. So instead, you tell us to try to manage how we 
handle our technology and manage our environment. And one of your suggestions was that we turn off our phone. We don't just, we do have opportunities to silence it or use airplane mode. And you suggest we use those far more than we're taking advantage of. But also we practice just turning it off um, and getting comfortable with the idea that we don't have to have it with us all the time. And for people who do, for safety reasons, need to have it with them all the time, you can practice turning it off for periods of time so that we can sort of calm our brain down from what you were referring to earlier about our reactive modes, so that we can learn to be more and more in a responsive mode. Can you talk about how we can manage our technology so that we can consciously be more responsive? Because technology is, as you said, the programming in it is to make us reactive. That's right. And so when we are reactive and distracted, then it's very difficult for us to be productive. And my definition of productive is achieving the results that are significant to you. But the problem is in order to be productive, to achieve those significant results, you have to be proactive. And it's difficult to be simultaneously proactive and reactive. And so we need to take control of our technology. I think as a society, we have just sort of relinquished control and accepted, well, this is a a consequence of living in the 21st century that I have all of these devices and that anyone can reach me for any reason in multiple different ways through these devices. And so I just have to figure out you know, how to manage my life in spite of that. But that's, to me, that's just sort of throwing up our hands and relinquishing control. And we can't do that. We have to empower ourselves to control our attention. And the only way that we can do that is if we exert more control over our technology. And a lot of people say that the biggest challenge that they have to controlling their technology, for example, using airplane mode or using do not disturb, shutting their phone off, you know, being without it for extended periods of time, the well, there are a couple of big challenges. One is that our habit of distraction makes that feel really uncomfortable. And so it's hard to overcome that discomfort. But the second challenge is that people tell me, well, but 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 I'm expected to be available. And I would just suggest that people question that assumption because I think we believe that people want an immediate response, but we all have people in our lives who don't provide us with an immediate response and we adjust to that behavior. Well, she doesn't respond right away, but I know I'll hear from her within a day or so. If it were more urgent, maybe I would text or call, but otherwise I'll probably hear from her by the end of the day or tomorrow. People make those calculations about other people all of the time. And so they will make those calculations about us as well. And even if, so the first thing is question those assumptions. Do people really, are are they, is it really going to cause a problem if you don't get back to them for an hour or for 30 minutes or for two hours or a half day or whatever it is? So question those assumptions. But the other thing is that even if people do expect that immediate response and demand that immediate response, imagine what kind of life we're going to lead if we feel like we need to be at the mercy of everyone else's expectations for us. And we can't make decisions based on what is best for us, but what is expected 
what we think other people and virtually any other person, right, expects from us. So that's what I, I, I try to, that's the message that I try to get across is that you can be empowered over your attention, but only if you take control over your technology and also over your environment. The, the book is really written in a lovely way for people who are trying to learn attention management. Some books that help us uh, have so much data and they're so long that you're almost too tired to get the self-help. You pick up the book and you think, well, maybe buying it was enough. Maybe the fact that I have it on my shelf and I want to read it someday will count and magically make me better. And one of the things I love about this book, and it's part of a series of books you have, is that it's 100 pages long. The pages have just enough information for a busy, tired brain. Everything is broken down into various ways of explaining it. So there are there are paragraphs and chunks that go deep that fully explain the issue. And then there are bullet points, there are lists, there are graphs, there are charts. So however you learn and process data, this book has it laid out for you. It's also broken down into really manageable chapters. So if you're just interested in one piece of attention management, you can just go right to that one piece. And then at the end of every chapter, in bright yellow, so you know what you're looking for, um, there's a whole series of action steps that are broken down for you as well. But one of the things I'd like to draw attention to right now is on page five, you lay out for us in a lovely green chart the four quadrants of attention management for productivity. And we just did quadrant one, which is about being reactive and distracted. And it breaks down the key um, markers so you can figure out where your attention is at the moment. So reactive and distracted is, is described as superficial divided attention, multitasking, typical state at work, unaware of how distracted we are. And then the example you would give is having several computer windows open at once and fielding drop-ins who are coming into your office. In the book, you also explain to us the state of attention that everyone loves and most people don't know how to get themselves into, which is called flow. And that's the next block on this chart. And for listeners who I know want to get into flow because they have a project and they'd like to just get it done and feel good about it, Flow is when you're laser focused, you're fully absorbed, you're disengaged from your sense of self, it's effortless, and your example is doing something you're trained for and good at. Can we talk about this other quadrant of our attention management for productivity, which is flow? Because I know that's the one where I, when I was reading about flow, I was like, this is the state I like to be in. Yes, of course. And the Un, uh, I don't want to say unfortunate, but the challenging part of flow is that it is not a state that we can command ourselves into, right? You can sit down and decide to be focused and you can work really hard at being focused. And if you do that, your brain, you might get fortunate enough that your brain will tip you into flow, right? You can't say to yourself, I'm now going into flow. Here I go. <laughs> it doesn't work that way because flow is a documented psychological state. And what that means, a documented psychological state, is that when 
we sort of wire up our brain and and monitor which parts of our brain are engaged at different times what was discovered and this was discovered by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi the Hungarian psychologist who discovered that our brain operates differently when we are in flow and the way that it's different is that when we are in flow the part of our brain that recognizes ourselves in time and space and creates chatter that part of our brain that says oh don't forget you got to call that person later and oh where our milk at, at the house and oh i got to sign the permission slip for my daughter to go to the camp and oh oh and she needs soccer cleats for the game and oh and where was i what was i what was i doing <laughs> right that part of our brain that creates all that chatter goes dark it turns off it it switches off and that allows us complete and total effortless immersion in whatever it is it could be a task it could be an experience it could be an activity it could be a conversation with another person it could be a learning environment but the point is the moment you are fully engaged in that moment and it is effortless but we can't will ourselves into that state we can't command ourselves into that state and one of the primary conditions for that state is that there are no distractions because it's very difficult to achieve flow in the presence if, if not impossible to achieve flow in the presence of distraction when i was reading about how we can't force flow or we can't say to our brain all right flow now um what was clear to me is that we can impede flow. While we can't force flow to happen, we can absolutely live a life that is impeding flow through the distractions and through the lack of understanding of where we're putting our attention. One thing that came to mind for me is the tremendous amount of work that I and my cohorts all get done when we deliberately go on a retreat. And one of the places that I go to to retreat really has terrible Wi-Fi service. You can see, um, and we tend to be uh, an all-female cohort, you can see the ladies out like on this one edge of the uh, balcony that has the best Wi-Fi reception at night so they can check in with their significant other before bed. And you have to kind of line up to get your turn. I mean, these are the places where I've had the best flow, have had the worst Wi-Fi, have had the worst cell uh, reception, have had no town within walking distance. Beautiful places to walk, but there's definitely nowhere you can go shopping or buy trinkets or um, get distracted. And so it, it strikes me that while we cannot force our brain to flow, we can create optimal conditions so that flow might wanna, might wanna occur in our brain. Exactly. And it's true that this is one of those unconscious calculations that I think we make. And I hear the same thing that you just said all the time. It's, oh, I get my best work done, you know, up in the Catskills where there's no Wi-Fi or out in the mountains or, you know, those are the, and those are the best times. I'm so reflective and it's so peaceful and I can really unwind. But the truth is we have that at our fingertips at any moment. We just tell ourselves, but I can't because I have to check this and I have to check that and I have to be online and people need me and blah, blah, blah. But we don't, we just sort of relinquish 
that control. At any moment, you could disconnect your internet at your house. You could turn off your phone. You could have that state. But we are so conditioned, it makes it difficult. And it's one of the reasons, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's one of the reasons that I I am not a fan of the advice to college students and other young younger people that says, you know, oh, you have to follow your passion. And if you, if you're, if you are passionate about your work, then you'll it won't it will never really feel like work. But I think the reality is it's great to do a job that you enjoy, but it still doesn't mean that you will enjoy all parts of it, every moment of it all the time. And once you are doing something to sustain your livelihood, it's not the same as doing it for fun, right? It's ha- taking pictures because you enjoy it is different than having a photography business. And of course, there are pieces that you will enjoy in that photography business, but other pieces are hard and work, right? That's why we call it work. And so it does tend to be easier because let's face it, those things that we in our brain think are hard and it's going to take, it's, it's, it's going to take a long time and it's going to be difficult to do this. And so it's very easy to say, well, maybe I'll just watch a little TikTok before I start on that. And then before you know it, two hours have gone by. And, but when you don't have Wi-Fi or internet, then you're just forced. There's nothing else to do. But we don't have to relinquish that kind of control. We can take it anytime we want it. I do literally unplug my TV. (laughs) It's a great idea. If we create... So um, in my other book in the series, the second book in the series called From To Do To Done, I talk about the idea of friction. And when you want... When you want to not engage in something, if you can create a little bit of friction that just makes it a little bit harder for you to do the things that you feel like I shouldn't be doing very often, then that can be enough to dissuade us. So one of the things I tell people, if you go into the settings on your phone and you go into your email account, there's a button that says, sync my email or don't sync my email. It's a little slider. And if you just move the slider from on to off, then even if you tap that email icon when you don't want to be working, for example, then it won't be there. And then it's like, oh, right, I need to, it's shut off. Okay, it's easy to turn back on, but no, 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 I didn't want to do it, so I'm not going to do it. So so just that little bit of friction, it doesn't take much. Like you said, unplugging your TV, especially if the plug is sort of hard to access and you have to kind of squeeze in behind the TV or move it out a little bit and um, or maybe disconnect the cable and you'd have to, you know, get a screwdriver and reconnect the wires if you really wanted to watch it. Just it doesn't take much to dissuade us from 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 not engaging in those things that we feel maybe we do too much of or they're not serving us. So that idea of friction can be really useful. And you remind us in the book that the world is never off. It may have been for our grandparents or our ancestors, there may have been a way for them to feel that the world had gone to sleep for the night or the world was off or the world was away. They were, they had taken themselves to a place 
of retreat and the world truly was away and, and not accessible. For us, we sort of have to metaphorically take ourselves away from the world because the world is is not far away and it doesn't turn off. Um, and you do remind us in the book that we have more control than we think. And so some of the tips that you've just gone through where you do not have to go to the Catskills, you can turn everything off at your house and have two solid hours or four hours or whatever you've been able to block out to just do your work. And if it means that the TV is unplugged, so when you distractedly use the clicker to turn it on, nothing turns on, you've, you've created that friction so that you've set your environment up for a bit more success so that hopefully flow conditions will happen. But again, we can't force flow. We can just stop impeding it. One of the other things um, on the four quadrants of attention management for productivity is daydreaming. And I was excited and surprised to see that daydreaming was an important part of these quadrants of attention management. So daydreaming is choosing not to focus on anything in particular, there's little external stimulus, mind is wandering, and it's restorative for your brain. And I think this is a really crucial piece of attention management for us to talk about because so many of us who are in academia or who are students right now were trained out of the value of daydreaming when we were very little. We were scolded for it by our teachers for staring out the window. We were considered wasting time if we weren't looking directly at our paper and at least pretending to use our pencil or our tablet. Um, and there is a value to daydreaming. It's part of the brain's important mechanism of rest. Um, for me, I daydream when I wash dishes and dishes gets to be a much maligned um, household chore. I personally like it because it's very sensory and I find that my mind just daydreams and I feel better after I've washed the dishes, plus it has that um, mastery of our environment that you encourage us for intention management to have, to have reduce your clutter and washing your dishes really reduces your clutter. So can you talk about um, daydreaming and why it has value for that restorative process that the brain needs? Yes. Our brains are really powerful, but we, when we are exerting control over our brains and directing our brains and saying, we're going to listen to this podcast, or we're going to work on this task, or we're going to watch this TV show, then we are sort of controlling our brain, but our, the unconscious part of our brain can be really powerful. It's why people tell me, I have my best ideas in the shower or I woke up with the solution to that problem that I was struggling with. It's because the unconscious part of our brain is super powerful. There's a great, great analogy and I'm pretty sure it comes from the book Influencer by Carrie Patterson. And he makes the analogy that our brain... And we can think of our brain and our consciousness as an elephant and a rider. So the brain is the elephant, your consciousness is the rider. The elephant, just like your brain, is a really powerful beast. But when the rider is on the elephant, controlling the elephant, the, the power is limited, right? The elephant is restrained by the rider. But when the rider gets off the elephant, then the true power of the elephant is unleashed. And I think it's just such a wonderful analogy. When when we get off the elephant, right? When when we remove our consciousness, the the constraints of our consciousness from our brain, then 
real power is unleashed and we just don't do that enough. There's power in doing nothing and there's power in boredom, but our current world is busy filling up those spaces for boredom and telling us not to be bored. Can you talk a little bit more about mindful pauses? Yes. So daydreaming used to happen in what I called the in-between moments, right? The moments where we were walking to the kitchen to pour a cup of coffee or or we just parked the car and we're walking across the parking lot into the building or we're waiting for a meeting to start or we're waiting in line somewhere. <clears throat> and we we just had these moments of sort of nothing to do. So we would, uh, our mind would just wander. We would have an opportunity even to consciously think about things. But those in-between moments have become extinct basically because now in any pause of activity, we all feel like we have to do something, right? I'm being lazy if I'm not doing something. For example, I could, I have all these little red notifications on my phone. I owe somebody something. I, I need to clear these notifications and I only have a minute as I ride the elevator, but that's enough to clear, you know, a cup, one or two of those notifications. And so if I had four, if my little red dot said four and now it says two, then I was productive during that downtime. But really we forget that the most productive we thing that we can do, especially if your work relies on your brain power, right? We call these knowledge workers people for whom their job outputs or their their productivity during the day like a student depends on thinking. If your outcomes and your success depends on thinking and intangible brain activities, then the most the productive thing you can do in those in-between moments is allow your brain to do its thing, whether you're consciously directing that, thinking, actively thinking about something, or just letting, you know, getting the elef- the rider off the elephant and just daydreaming and seeing what kind of connections your brain makes on its own. That's so productive. Often the most productive thing we can do, especially more productive than clearing the notification that says it might rain later or that somebody liked your LinkedIn post or whatever, right? We forget. We forget what true productivity really is. And it's the accomplishment of those results that are most significant to us. You also invite us to get out of our thinking mind, get out of our brain through mindfulness techniques. And for people who haven't tried guided meditation or haven't tried mindfulness, it can be really daunting to think about calming down your brain when you believe your value is a is a very productive, highly amped up, highly reactive brain, that that's what you're giving to the world and to your tasks. And in inviting us to take our attention back and take our focus back to what's meaningful to us, you invite us to become grounded and mindful about where we are in place and time as a way of getting out of our head and letting our letting that reactive part of our brain rest. Can you talk about this mindful technique you have where we could set the timer for a few minutes and just try to 
pay attention to the actual physical space that we're in. Sure. Yeah. A lot of people do inter do, do use mindfulness and meditation interchangeably, but for me, they are two distinct things. You can be mindful, meaning you are present, you are fully engaged, maybe not in flow, although maybe, but the point is you are fully engaged in the task at hand. So for example, in this conversation, right, I am listening to you and not doing anything else. My, I'm not allowing my mind to wander. I'm not checking my email while you're p- posing your question, right? I am present. I am listening. And that's mindful. We can be mindful by just being quiet and breathing and sort of reflecting on, kind of observing our thoughts. What am I thinking about? How am I feeling? Is there tension in my body, right? We can pay attention cognitively to our physical state, which I think most of us don't do uh, hardly ever. And that is mindfulness. You also, though, can be, you can engage in a meditative practice, like what you described of washing the dishes sounds to me like a meditative practice for you. Or you can actively meditate, and there are many ways to do that. One is transcendental meditation is the act of clearing your mind and pushing aside all thoughts and trying to get to a completely empty brain. That's one type of meditation. And then there's guided meditations where you listen to basically a story Um, There are all kinds of apps. The one I tend to use the most often is called Budify. But you can do a one-minute or a two-minute or a five-minute or a 20-minute guided meditation that is essentially a story that says, imagine this and think about this and, you know, notice this and all of those kinds of things. And that, too, um, is a form of meditation. But you can absolutely be mindful without meditating, I think, at least to me. Oh, I agree that we can look at mindfulness and meditation as two separate things. And and some people, meditation isn't right for them for mental health reasons. Um, and, and But mindfulness can be really helpful for, for all aspects of our life. Um, towards the end of the book, um, in one of the action steps section, which... Um, occurs on page 63 and 64, you show us what implementing a number of these attention management steps into a week might look like. And you invite us to be patient and kind with ourselves that we're building new habits and that's always a process. Um, So you, you outline a sample week if we were using more and more of these techniques. So you suggest that on Monday, we could set a timer to focus on a single task so that we can get out of multitasking and see what it's like to focus on just one task and have that timer to help us see what it would be like if we did that for a discrete period of time. Tuesday, we could take two breaks where we sit still, possibly outside with no devices, so we're just present and mindful. Wednesday, we could try a couple of short guided meditations. Thursday, we could read a chapter from a nonfiction book or a long-form article on something that interests us. 
Friday, we could take on a mentally challenging activity like playing chess or learning something new. Saturday, we could go out in nature for an hour and leave our phone behind. And Sunday, we could spend time with a person that we enjoy, have our devices away, and give that person our full attention and presence. Um, I love that sample week of what it might look like if we were just incorporating one step at a time, one habit at a time, to be uh, in charge of our attention and to be aware of how we're managing it and where it goes. You remind us in the book that productivity is not busyness. It's about directing our activities to the things that are important to us. In the few minutes that we have left, um, could you tell us what you hope this um, attention to shifting away from time management ideas to attention management can help readers do to really and listeners do to really define productivity in terms of their own values and their own needs in life? Yes, thank you for the question because it's really what inspires me about my work is that we we uh, the significance right so i define productivity as things that are significant to you and the significance changes with the time horizon so in a, in this hour the most significant thing i could do is very different than if i were asked at the end of the week what was your most significant thing and it would also be different if i was asked at the end of the month what was your most significant thing and at the end of the year and at the end of the decade and ultimately at the end of our life. And if you think about what you might say was significant to you at the end of your life when you are reflecting back on it, most people, and I did ask this of my audiences for years, you know, what do you hope to say about your life at the end of it? And everybody said the same kind of things, you know, that I that I was loved, that I loved, that I was kind, that I made a difference, that I had an impact. And so if you think about your ultimate significant results in those kinds of terms, those things happen in moments, right? If people feel that you were kind to them, that happens in a moment. And a collection of moments for sure. And we all make mistakes and that's fine. But every moment is the opportunity to be the kind of person that you want to be and to live a life of choice. And so that's really what I, I hope attention management inspires people too, is that we have a choice. And sometimes in a moment we make the wrong choice, but that's okay because the next moment presents another opportunity. And so thinking about your productivity in terms of not only today's, this hour's, this minute's significant results, but ultimately our lifetime significant results can really empower people to live a life of choice and intention rather than a life of reaction and distraction. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Maura Thomas, and telling us about your book, Attention Management, How to Create Success and Gain Productivity Every Day. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life here on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.